You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Thanks for tuning in to the 52nd episode of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the podcast. The fall of Fort Sumter and Lincoln's call for troops pushed Virginia over the brink into secession. On April 17, 1861, the Virginia Convention voted to take the Old Dominion out of the Union, but there was significant opposition to that decision, mainly from the mountainous western counties. So the convention's leaders decided to provide for a popular referendum to be held five weeks later on May 23rd. On that date, a majority of Virginia's voters agreed that their state should leave the Union. Late that night, several columns of federal troops invaded northern Virginia. They crossed the Potomac River from the District of Columbia and occupied the town of Alexandria and also the nearby heights at Arlington. While the Union soldiers were taking over Alexandria, Colonel Elmer Ellsworth was killed after hauling down a rebel flag flying from the roof of a local hotel. Meanwhile, Robert E. Lee had been preparing Virginia for war, equipping, drilling, and readying his home state's troops for action. As federal strength grew around Alexandria, a brief skirmish took place at Fairfax Courthouse on June 1st when a patrol of Union cavalry troopers clashed with Confederates of the Warrenton Rifles and Prince William Cavalry. During the chaotic little fight, Captain John Q. Marr of the Warrington Rifles was killed. Federals and Confederates clashed again a few days later, on June 3rd, this time out in western Virginia, at the town of Philippi, as the Federals moved to secure the line of the important Baltimore and Ohio Railroad. The rebels were surprised in their encampment and quickly fled before the advancing Union columns. This action, really little more than another minor skirmish, was glorified in the northern press and dubbed the Philippi Races. On that same day, the North lost one of its most influential politicians when Stephen Douglas died in Chicago, having spent his last days stumping to support his old nemesis, Abraham Lincoln, and the Union war effort. After the firing on Fort Sumter, Douglas had declared, Every man must be for the United States or against it. There can be no neutrals in this war only patriots or traitors. The first real battle of the war took place on June 10th in eastern Virginia, down on the Lower Peninsula. The battle took place when Benjamin Butler, a political general from Massachusetts, sent a strong force from Union-held Fort Monroe to strike out at Confederates eight miles away at Big Bethel. But the entrenched Southerners, under the command of John Magruder and D.H. Hill, handily defeated the attacking Yankees at the cost of one killed and ten wounded, while the Federals lost 18 killed, 53 wounded, and five missing. 
A few weeks before the battle at Big Bethel, three runaway slaves had made their way to the Union lines at Fort Monroe, and Butler, after determining that the men had been forced to labor in support of the Southern war effort, he declared them contraband of war and refused to return the three runaways to their former owner, a Confederate officer. Butler's bold decision was eventually supported by the Lincoln administration, and soon enough, dozens and then hundreds of runaway slaves were making their way to the Union lines around Fort Monroe. Back out in western Virginia, Union troops under the command of Major General George B. McClellan eventually followed up their victory at Philippi by moving against the small Confederate army under the command of Brigadier General Robert S. Garnett. Outnumbered by McClellan's force, Garnett had placed his men in defensive positions at Laurel Hill and Rich Mountain, but on July 11th, when the force at Rich Mountain was defeated by federal troops under the command of William S. Rosecrans, Garnett was forced to withdraw from Laurel Hill. During the ensuing retreat, Garnett was killed at Cork's Ford while directing the action of the small Confederate rear guard. He was the first general officer to die in battle in the Civil War. So we wanted to take a few minutes for that review of events we've already covered on the podcast in some previous episodes because we thought it would be helpful to run through them here and also to put them in chronological order since previously we skipped around a bit, both in time and topic. But you guys should also know that as both sides mobilized their forces and as pieces started to be moved around the chessboard, Besides the events we've covered, there were other small actions that took place during this time at the very start of the war, perhaps most notably out in Missouri. But with the events in Missouri, we want to cover all of that in one storyline, so we'll do that when we get to Wilson's Creek. But anyway, with the start of this episode, we just wanted to emphasize that here in the first few months of the Civil War, most people's eyes, in both the North and South, most people's eyes were very much focused on Virginia. In his book, Tried by War, Abraham Lincoln as Commander-in-Chief, James McPherson explains that, quote, On May 21, 1861, the Provisional Confederate Congress made a political decision that would have profound military consequences. The Southern lawmakers accepted Virginia's invitation to locate their capital in Richmond, a hundred miles from Washington. This decision made Northern Virginia the main theater of the war. Although Richmond would have been a focal point of conflict in any case because of its war industries, the city's political importance concentrated Confederate strategic thinking on Virginia at the expense of the lower and western southern states. It also focused Northern attention primarily on Virginia. End quote. McPherson goes on to point out that McClellan's victories in western Virginia generated increasing pressure for an advance against the larger Confederate army, which was gathering around Manassas Junction, about 30 or so miles southwest of Washington, D.C. With blood having been spilled in these various skirmishes and small battles in Virginia, the New York Tribune began to print on its editorial page each day the slogan, On to Richmond and then other northern newspapers quickly jumped on the on-to-Richmond bandwagon. Adding urgency to that demand was the fact that the Confederate Congress was scheduled to meet in Richmond for the first time on July 20th. And so, egged on by the newspaper's strident calls for action, there was a growing belief among the northern public that the main Union army should advance and capture Richmond before the rebel Congress could meet there. 
Tension quickly built up in Washington as President Lincoln felt pressured to respond to the northern public's growing impatience for action. And so it was in direct response to that pressure that the First Battle of Manassas was fought in July 1861. Underlying the northern public's call for action by the main Union army that had been building up around Washington was the idea that a single climactic battle would result in a decisive victory that would settle the war. In fact, once the shooting started, most Americans, in both the North and South, agreed on this idea that a single grand victory would decide the war. And in the 19th century, this was not looked upon as some naive assumption. That's because Americans had been conditioned to believe that wars were usually decided by a single major engagement, that the outcome of battles was determined by the character of the armies and the righteousness of one's cause, and that the enemy, both in cause and character, was inferior. It's important to understand that in July of 1861, Northerners and Southerners viewed the various clashes and small battles that had taken place so far as mere preliminaries, for they fully expected the main blow to fall somewhere in northern Virginia, in the region between the two rival capitals. A single grand Napoleonic-style victory there, both Northerners and Southerners believed, would be sufficient to convince the other side of the hopelessness of its cause. In his book, A Single Grand Victory, The First Campaign and Battle of Manassas, Ethan Rafuse says that because of popular military histories of the day, quote, 19th century Americans learned that in a single day, on a single battlefield, in a single crucial engagement, a whole empire could be destroyed, a nation's independence assured, and the fate of millions determined by the actions of a single army led by a brilliant commander. This concept of war almost totally ignored logistics, political factors, strategy, and other aspects of military operations. Instead, war was conceived of almost purely as a test of character. Rafuse goes on to say that this popular belief in a single grand victory meant that at the start of the Civil War, both Northerners and Southerners were confident that the conflict would be a short one. But as it turned out, the old general-in-chief of the Union armies, Winfield Scott, was one of the few people thinking the conflict would not be over so quickly, and so Scott, very early on, was thinking in terms of long-term strategic goals. Scott formulated a strategy that came to be called the Anaconda Plan, after the large South American snake that encircles and then slowly squeezes its prey to death. Scott's plan was a strategy that, broadly speaking, consisted of two parts. One part was naval. It would see a continual tightening of the blockade on southern ports. And then for the second part of the plan, the Army would take several months to raise and train a 60 to 80,000 man force from regular Army troops and three-year volunteers. That force, accompanied by a large flotilla of gunboats, would make, quote, a powerful movement down the Mississippi to the ocean with the cordon of post at proper points, end quote. That powerful movement would be composed of two columns. One would move by land alongside the river, while the other traveled by boat, flanking any rebels that offered resistance to the land force. Together, the blockade and the occupation of the line of the Mississippi would, quote, envelop the insurgent states and bring them to terms, end quote. And Winfield Scott thought there was a chance his plan might end the war by the next summer, the summer of 1862. 
Winfield Scott's strategy was based on a couple of key assumptions. One was Scott's firm belief that the large numbers of three-year volunteers who enlisted in the first flush of excitement at the start of the war could not be relied upon to any substantial degree, and that it would take time to build up and train a disciplined and reliable force consisting of regular army troops and three-year volunteers. Scott's second assumption was that any big offensive move by Union armies in the East, in Virginia, would be counterproductive, since it would only inflame Southern passions, and besides that, such an offensive would probably go nowhere fast, since Scott thought capturing Richmond would involve a long, costly campaign. On the other hand, a strategy that focused on blockading the southern coastline and on moving armies out in the Mississippi River Valley would allow the southern people time to have second thoughts about the wisdom of secession. You see, Winfield Scott and other Northerners believed the majority of the Southern people had simply been carried along by the passionate wave of secession fever that had swept the region, but that given half a chance, they would come to their senses and realize their true sentiments lay with the Union, and they would then rise up and regain control of their states from the secessionists that had stirred up all the trouble following Lincoln's election and after the fall of Fort Sumter. And it should be pointed out that Scott's belief in this bottled-up Unionist sentiment still held by a majority of temporarily overexcited Southerners, well, that was an assumption that was also held by many others in the North at the start of the war, including Abraham Lincoln and Secretary of State William H. Seward. But then on June 29th, President Lincoln called a meeting at the White House that was essentially a high-level war council. At the meeting, besides Lincoln's cabinet, were Winfield Scott, Brigadier General Irvin McDowell, Quartermaster General Montgomery C. Miggs, and several other Army officers. Winfield Scott was still confident that the best way to proceed was to follow a strategy that avoided major provocations and that allowed for the passage of time so that Southern passions might cool, but in the summer of 1861, Scott's plan really didn't stand a chance. That's because the on-to-Richmond bandwagon was gathering irresistible momentum. At the White House meeting, McDowell who at the end of May had been promoted and given command of the large federal army gathering around Washington. But at the White House meeting, McDowell was given the opportunity to present his plan of campaign. He proposed an aggressive move into northern Virginia, striking a blow at the Confederate army at Manassas. And Lincoln, sensitive to the building pressure to mount an immediate offensive, decided to approve McDowell's plan. When someone asked Winfield Scott when the operation against the rebels at Manassas would commence, the old general-in-chief, without consulting McDowell, said it would begin in one week. That would be July 8th, and thus Scott's answer gave McDowell very little time to prepare. As McPherson explains in Tried by War, McDowell, quote, proposed to feint against the defended bridges and fords along Bull Run east of Manassas while sending an attack column around the Confederate flank to cross at an undefended ford to make the real attack. It was a good plan for veteran troops, but McDowell's civilians in uniform were still raw. He pleaded for more time to train them. More time, however, would melt away the army by expiration of enlistments, and the enemy soldiers were equally raw. You are green, it is true, the president acknowledged, but they are green also. You are all green alike. End quote.
Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. Irvin McDowell was born in Columbus, Ohio in 1818 and educated in France. A bright student, he gained admittance to West Point and graduated in 1838, 23rd in a class of 45. By the way, a Louisianan named Pierre-Gustave Toutant Beauregard was a classmate of McDowell's in the West Point class of 1838. After graduation, McDowell was commissioned a second lieutenant in the artillery and performed garrison duty along the Canadian border until 1841. That year, he returned to West Point as an instructor in tactics, rising to first lieutenant in 1844. The following year, McDowell joined the staff of John E. Wool in Texas as that general's aide-de-camp. In that capacity, McDowell distinguished himself during the fighting at the February 1847 Battle of Buena Vista, winning brevet promotion to captain. Three months later, McDowell rose to full captain and was transferred to Washington, D.C. There, McDowell acquired the reputation as a competent and efficient staff officer. During the roll-up to the Civil War, he was at the War Department, serving under Winfield Scott. In April 1861, McDowell was a major. And then, although he had no more battlefield experience than most other officers in the Army, McDowell, in May, was suddenly promoted several grades to Brigadier General and given command of the main Federal Army that was building up around Washington, D.C. McDowell's sudden elevation was due, in no small part, to the fact that he had the support of Ohio's powerful Republican Governor, William Dennison, and also the backing of another influential Ohioan, Salmon Chase, Lincoln's Secretary of the Treasury. In the spring of 1861, McDowell was 42 years old. He was six feet tall and heavy set. All in all, he looked bluff, hearty, and capable. 
David Detzer, in his book Donnybrook, The Battle of Bull Run, 1861, gives this description of the man chosen to lead the Union's first big offensive. Quote, In manner, he tended to be modest, open-minded, and frank, but he lacked any spark of charisma. In conversation, he was never gruff or openly rude, but he had no gift for conviviality. Though quite bright, well-read, and occasionally capable of fluent conversation, he tended to be reserved. He had trouble remembering names or faces and often seemed absent-minded, even vague, thinking about something else entirely. Robust, he had virtually no vices. He did not drink intoxicants or coffee or tea. He did not indulge in any form of tobacco. He did not swear, nor did he gamble or play cards. He was a devout trencherman who took great pleasure in eating long and well. And we had to look up trencherman, but it means a person who enjoys food, a hearty eater. Exactly. But Detzer's description continues. As a young man, he had studied in France, and he could talk intelligently and passionately about continental cuisine. He loved music and fishing, and despite his clumsy appearance, he was a superb dancer. He had a highly structured mind, so it was not surprising that among his interests were architecture and landscape gardening. End quote. Well, after the big meeting at the White House and the approval of his plan of campaign, McDowell would have had precious little time to devote to architecture or landscape gardening. When Winfield Scott had said McDowell's offensive would begin on July 8th, that date was no accident, because by mid-July, it would be three months since Lincoln, after the fall of Fort Sumter, had issued his call for 75,000 volunteers to serve for 90 days. Since then, the president had made calls for men to serve two and three years, but that didn't change the fact that the terms of service of those first 90-day volunteers would begin to expire soon, and so many of the soldiers in blue were on the point of going home without ever having seen combat. So there was the impending expiration of the terms of service of the 90-day volunteers, and there was the mounting public pressure for the capture of Richmond, and so McDowell was given the green light for his offensive, and the clock was rapidly ticking on the start of the operation, because the president, as Lincoln scholar Don Fehrenbacher pointed out, the president also undoubtedly thought that, quote, the widespread belief that the war could be won quickly with a few bold strokes had to be tested, and there was probably more to be lost by inaction than by action, whatever its result, end quote. And that's probably true as far as Lincoln's thinking at the time, but it's equally true that the decision to greenlight McDowell's plan was a foreshadowing of the fact that for both the Union and Confederacy, determining how the war was waged would often be as dependent on political concerns as it was on military factors. No officer north or south had ever commanded an army of 35,000 men before, but nonetheless, McDowell, with energy and purpose, set about the daunting task of readying the Federal Army that had assembled around Washington. But he was severely handicapped by the, by the fact that the War Department made little effort to provide him with an adequate number of trained staff officers. The task of organizing, training, and undertaking offensive operations with thousands of raw volunteers was indeed a daunting task, and the job was made even more difficult for McDowell by lack of adequate staff to assist him. 
After watching McDowell scrambling to ready his army for the upcoming offensive, one observer said, quote, I saw him do things of detail which in any even halfway organized army belong to the specialty of a chief of staff. It seems that genuine staff duties are something altogether unknown to the army. End quote. And then, as Rayfuse points out in A Single Grand Victory, quote, the government could not even provide McDowell with a decent map of the region in which he was expected to operate. As a consequence, he would begin the campaign with only a general knowledge of where the main roads in northern Virginia over which his army would march were located. Their quality and the nature of the terrain from a military standpoint would be for all intents and purposes a mystery. To make matters worse, out of an expectation that the war would be a short one, the government declined to accept any volunteer cavalry regiments and demonstrated a notable lack of interest in developing an efficient mounted arm, end quote. And so, besides being handicapped in his preparations by lack of staff, McDowell would begin the campaign with no good maps and without a cavalry officer he could trust to conduct a reconnaissance. To further complicate things, McDowell's plan depended on a simultaneous advance by another Union force. That Union force of 15,000 men was out near Harper's Ferry, and it was to move against 11,000 Confederate troops in the Shenandoah Valley. This aggressive move would prevent that Confederate force from slipping away and reinforcing the main Confederate army at Manassas. The commander of the small Union army tasked with this vital operation was a Pennsylvanian, Robert Patterson. Patterson, a friend of Winfield Scott's, was a 69-year-old veteran of the War of 1812 and the Mexican War. In the War of 1812, Patterson had risen to the rank of captain in the regular army, but he left the army at the end of the war. At the outbreak of war with Mexico in 1846, Patterson received a volunteer commission as a major general. He performed valuable service in Mexico and then was mustered out of the service at the end of the war, at which point he returned to Pennsylvania. Patterson remained active in his home state's militia, and at the start of the Civil War, even though he was almost 70 years old, he offered his services to the Union. Since Patterson was popular in Pennsylvania, particularly among the militia, the Lincoln administration felt he could not be ignored and Patterson was duly given a three-month volunteer commission as a major general. As has already been mentioned, Patterson's little army had a vital role to play in the Union plan, but as we'll see, he'll ultimately fail to pin down the enemy force in the Shenandoah Valley. On the eve of the battle at Manassas, the rebels will slip away from Patterson, and then they'll quickly move by rail to reinforce the main Confederate army facing McDowell. That Confederate force out in the Shenandoah Valley was commanded by Brigadier General Joseph E. Johnston. At the start of the Civil War, Johnston was the only general officer of the regular army to resign his commission and fight for the Confederacy. In his book, Battle at Bull Run, A History of the First Major Campaign at the Civil War, William C. Davis says of Johnston, quote, He was a small, slight man, wispy hair receding back from a high forehead his small goatee so projecting from his slender, hollow-cheeked face as to give him a rodent-like appearance. There were few indeed who came to the Confederacy from the old army with a better reputation. He attended the military academy with Lee and thereafter served in campaigns against the Seminoles in Florida and in the Mexican War. 
He seemed to have a natural attraction for bullets, being wounded repeatedly, but just as often he won compliments and promotions. Eventually he wound up in Washington to become a brigadier general in the regular army and quartermaster general. It was a long way to have come, the capstone to a fine career. But Johnston was from Virginia, and immediately upon her secession he resigned his commission and accepted one, first as a major general in Virginia state troops, and later as a brigadier in the Confederate service. He was 54, in his prime, and conscious of his reputation. End quote. In mid-May, Johnston had been assigned command of the Confederate force organizing and training at Harper's Ferry. Before Johnston's arrival, the Confederates at Harper's Ferry had been commanded by Colonel Thomas J. Jackson. Turning to Davis again, he says, quote, Jackson was 37 now, a native of Western Virginia, and an undistinguished graduate of West Point. His service in the Mexican War won him two brevet promotions, but little notice, and in 1852, he resigned his commission to become instructor at Lexington's Virginia Military Institute. Here it was that many of the stories about Jackson started, for the combination of eccentric professor and imaginative boys was bound to strike sparks. They called him Tom Full and Old Blue Light, the latter because of his eyes. Few, if any, of the boys liked the punctilious disciplinarian, and at least one resolved to kill him some day. When not damning him, they privately subjected him to ridicule for his quaint habits. End quote. Besides being eccentric in some aspects of his personality, Jackson was also driven by a profound religious zeal following the austerely demanding tenets of Presbyterianism. Once in command at Harper's Ferry, Colonel Jackson drilled his soldiers relentlessly. Most of the volunteers there, still blissfully unaware of the extraordinary demands real campaigning would make on their endurance, deeply resented Jackson's insistence on discipline and drill. In July 1861, besides Jackson, another officer under Johnston's command was a cavalry officer, Lieutenant Colonel Jeb Stewart. Y'all will recall that Jeb Stewart had been at Harper's Ferry before. In 1859, as a lieutenant, he had served as Robert E. Lee's second-in-command at the capture of John Brown. After the outbreak of the Civil War, Stewart, 28 years old, found himself leader of several companies of Confederate horse. Now, as a lieutenant colonel, his first order of business was the organization of his companies into a regiment, the 1st Virginia Cavalry Regiment. Jeb Stewart would prove to be a fiery warrior and a great cavalryman, and while he insisted his men drill and train in the traditional cavalry functions, there was always something of the merry rogue about Jeb Stewart. In the summer of 1861, he said something revealing. After several days of hard riding, his men were tired and hungry and wanted to rest. Nonsense, he told them. You don't want to go back to camp. I know, it's stupid there, and all the fun is out here. I never go to camp if I can help it. Well, as we said, on the eve of the battle at Manassas, Johnston's command will slip away from the Shenandoah Valley, and then they'll quickly move by rail to reinforce the main Confederate army facing McDowell. And in July 1861, that main Confederate army, readying itself to meet the anticipated Federal advance into northeastern Virginia, that main Confederate army was commanded by P.G.T. Beauregard. As we mentioned before, Beauregard had been a classmate of McDowell's at West Point, and you guys will remember him from the episodes we did on Fort Sumter, where he was in command of the Confederate forces there at Charleston Harbor. 
Some of y'all may be wondering where Robert E. Lee is, since now you know Johnston and Beauregard were commanding these Confederate troops in Virginia. Well, July of 1861 is well before Robert E. Lee rises to prominence during the Civil War. Up to this point, Lee has seen, as best he could, to the organizing, training, and equipping of Virginia's forces, but those have now been turned over to Confederate control. And so now Lee, in Richmond, is serving not as a field commander, but as a military advisor to Jefferson Davis. Exactly. And so as we've pointed out before on the podcast, uh, back in the episode when we discussed strategy, but the Confederate States of America had one objective at the start of the Civil War, to establish itself as a full-standing, independent nation. And to achieve that goal didn't require the South to conquer the North. Rather, the new nation simply needed to successfully defend itself from invasion and, in the process, gain world recognition. Aware of all this, and knowing that each state in the new Confederacy would expect protection from Yankee incursions, Jefferson Davis made an early decision to rigidly defend as much Confederate territory as possible, trusting that Southern armies would be able to meet and repel Federal invasions of the Confederacy. But this approach obviously completely surrendered the initiative to the North, and that's why the South would not actually adhere to a purely defensive strategy. But all of this was still being worked out at the start of the war, and so it was as part of this initial Confederate strategy, that is, as part of this defensive posture, that PGT Beauregard was readying his army to meet and repel the anticipated Federal advance into northeastern Virginia. It was Manassas Junction that attracted the Confederate commander's attention. There, two railroads, the Manassas Gap and the Orange and Alexandria, connected some 30 miles southwest of Washington. The Orange and Alexandria would without doubt be the line of advance for a Union army marching into northeastern Virginia from Washington. And then the Manassas Gap line was vital because it connected the Shenandoah Valley with Richmond and eastern Virginia. And so the importance of Manassas Junction and the Shenandoah Valley and the railroad that linked them all loomed large in everyone's thinking. Upon assuming command, Beauregard set his troops and large numbers of slaves to work building fortifications near the railroad depot at Manassas. But despite that work, Beauregard believed the key to holding the place was actually the line of a stream some three miles northeast of the junction. This belief was confirmed as Beauregard rode about, examining the terrain, and talking to the locals. That stream, called Bull Run, flowed on a crooked course from northwest to southeast. The countryside nearby was, by turns, Rolling Hill and Gentle Plain, but along almost all of the run itself, the banks were steep and the waters too deep for wading. Thus, from a military standpoint, it was only crossable at a limited number of fords and at one bridge. And so, although Beauregard advanced three brigades into forward positions in the countryside beyond the stream, it was along the banks of Bull Run itself that he planned to make his stand and meet the Federal advance when it came. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is The Maps of First Bull Run by Bradley M. Godfrey. If any of you are already familiar with the Savas Beatty Military Atlas series, you know that this is a truly outstanding collection of books, and I don't think that's just the map geek in me talking. Um, this book, 
the maps of First Bull Run, breaks down the entire campaign into dozens of maps, and key to each map is a full facing page of detailed text describing the units, personalities, movements, and combat. It's really just an incredible aid to understanding what happened during the campaign and at the battle. And then we also wanted to remind y'all that back with episode 38, we gave some recommendations of Civil War atlases that might be helpful to y'all to follow along with the podcast. So you can go back to that episode's post on the website and check those out. So you can find those atlases and the maps of Bull Run and all of our book recommendations at www.civilwarpodcast.blogspot.com. And as for the name thing, uh, since you may have noticed that we've been consistently referring to the battle as First Manassas, but uh, that book recommendation and many people refer to it as Bull Run. Well, here's the deal. The North tended to refer to battles by the name of a nearby watercourse, such as Bull Run or Antietam or Stones River. But the South tended to refer to battles by the name of a nearby town or settlement, such as Manassas or Sharpsburg or Murfreesboro. And that means that still today, you might hear the same Civil War battle referred to by two different names. So to cut through that, uh, the best policy we could think to establish on the podcast is that where there is a difference, we'll refer to the battle with the name the National Park Service uses for the site. So there you go. Sounds good. All right, then we have an all-international list of thank yous for donations this week. Thank you to Steve M. and Gordon B. from the U.K., and then Scott D., who is in the Australian military. We appreciate the support, y'all. The music you hear at the beginning and end of every show is from the song Midnight on the Water, and it's used with the permission of Spiritwood Music. All right, and with that, we'll say thank you to all of you guys for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Next week, the Union Army marches from Washington, so we hope you'll join us again for that. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.